Should you stop everything you're doing to learn Chinese for one year? How should you approach reading at an intermediate level? And how do you choose the best resources for learning? Hello and welcome to the Hacking Chinese podcast. This episode marks the third anniversary of the podcast, which means we've had one episode every week for 156 weeks. I'm happy that the podcast has come this far, and I started it mostly as an experiment to see if it would be worthwhile to try to present Hacking Chinese content in a new format. I also appreciate other people who provide their content in a format where I can listen to it instead of reading it, because this makes it so much more likely that I will actually get to it. And so I hope this has been the case for some of you who listen as well. Naturally, some things are also much easier to talk about. For example, when I talk about pronunciation here on the podcast, I can just say a word or I can mispronounce a word deliberately to show the difference between A and B, and this kind of thing is difficult to do on the blog. Over the years working with the podcast, I've also become much better at recording and editing, which means that, sure, it takes time to produce the articles and then record the episodes based on those articles, but it is much less painful than it used to be. In this anniversary episode, I will do what I did in the previous two as well, which is to answer reader and listener questions. This time I have selected three questions. One is about dropping everything you're doing to learn Chinese. The second is about intermediate reading, so what should you read and how should you approach reading at this level? And the third question is about how to choose resources when there are many available, and also how to get out of the situation where you spend most of your time trying to find the best methods and the best resources instead of actually learning Chinese. There were, of course, more questions than these, but I want to take my time and discuss each in detail, so I will save the other questions for upcoming episodes. Now that I have finished the story of how I learned Chinese, and for that I published one episode every time there was a new challenge on hacking Chinese, I need something else to do with those episodes, and they aren't then tied to specific articles on hacking Chinese, because the challenges always have the same articles. So what I thought I'd do when there is a challenge, beyond announcing the challenge itself, of course, is to answer reader and listener questions. So if you have any questions, do send them in to me. You can send them to editor at hackingchinese.com. You can just respond to any of the newsletters. You can leave a comment on Hacking Chinese or ping me on social media. It doesn't really matter. In next week's episode, in which I will announce the August translation challenge, I will then also answer some more questions, such as those I didn't get to today. Before we get to today's questions, though, I would kindly ask you to recommend the Hacking Chinese podcast to your friends and to review and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. This helps the podcast to grow and it also makes it feel more worthwhile for me to produce these episodes. If you have any feedback regarding the podcast or any suggestions for topics to cover, you can also reach out to me and I'd be happy to hear from listeners. If you want to support Hacking Chinese and my effort to make learning Mandarin easier for all, the best thing you can do is to spread the word, as I just said. But if you want to support me more directly, you can check out my courses at hackingchinese.com courses. And you can also support me directly on Patreon if you would like. If you're not in a position where that works, that's perfectly fine. But spreading the word to fellow learners of Chinese is completely free and only takes a few minutes. Okay, so let's get started with the first question, which comes from Chris. 
His email is rather long and contains a lot of information, which is generally good when you ask the type of question that he asks, which is basically if he should drop everything he's doing to learn Chinese for one year. And to make a decision like that, obviously there are many factors to consider, so providing lots of details is important. However, I want this episode to be interesting for people who aren't Chris specifically, and so I will widen the scope a little bit, zoom out and discuss related questions before I go in and try to actually answer the question. I think there are two different sides to this question. So one of them is what you can achieve in one year if you dedicate that year to learning Chinese, and what kind of results would you expect from doing that? The second part of the question is what other things you could have been doing instead, or what things you sacrifice in order to be able to do this. So the opportunity costs here are rather important. In Chris's case, he's considering quitting his job, but depending then on what you work with and how important that is to you, and how easy it would be to find a similar job when you get back, this might or might not be very important. Of course, simply studying for one year costs a lot of money, and that is also something that is worth considering. But these are naturally things that I cannot discuss on this podcast, partly because I have no expertise in this area at all, and it also varies so much between different people that it borders on being meaningless to talk about in general terms. I can say a few things, though, that I think are generally true, not for everybody everywhere, but in most cases. So I will start with those, and then we will move on to the question I actually can answer, or at least talk about in more detail, which is what you can expect from one year abroad learning Chinese. So one important factor that I already mentioned is, of course, money. And I think it's rather well known that people who work mostly or only with languages tend to not be very well paid. So if your goal is to earn a lot of money, quitting your job or even investing a long period of time into Chinese for that very reason is probably not very smart. For this to make sense, you need a very specific path where learning Chinese or speaking Chinese is integral to some other very good opportunity you have, which is very likely to be tied to something else that you know. Maybe it's a company you run, maybe it's a career in some other profession, or something else that you know that matches very well with the ability to speak and communicate in Chinese. All the people I know, inside and outside of academia, who work with languages, do so because they enjoy it and because they find it interesting, not because they want to make a fortune. So if that is your goal, you probably shouldn't quit your job. You are much better off simply earning money where you are right now. However, everything in life isn't about money, and interest and passion do make a big difference. I work with the Chinese language because I enjoy it and I find it very rewarding to teach others and help others learn. And I'm sure most of you have some personal relationship to the Chinese language or the culture or something else that makes it feel worthwhile for you. But the problem is, of course, that weighing this against some monetary cost or risk is incredibly difficult to do on a podcast like this. And so, for this part of the question, you simply need to weigh the pros and cons and see what you want to do. So let's turn to the other part of this question, which is what you can actually achieve in one year if you dedicate all your time to learning Chinese. This can be equally well applied to three months or six months or two years or some other arbitrary period of time, and this is interesting to discuss because there are many misconceptions about how much you will learn and why. There are also numerous factors that influence how much you actually learn, so this is worth looking closer at. The first factor I think is worth discussing is how much Chinese you know in advance. 
If you're a complete beginner or have just dabbled with Chinese for a while, I think quitting everything you're doing and going abroad is not necessarily the best thing to do, and I think so for two reasons. The first is that the basics of the language can be equally well learned at home. And this is something I have argued in more detail in an earlier episode. Namely, why not going to China now could actually be good for your Chinese, and that was episode 4. In short, the argument is that there are many things you can equally well learn at home, and going abroad to learn these things just costs a lot of money and doesn't add much. You might also not be able to quality control the education you get and so on, and so doing things that you can equally well do at home abroad doesn't really help that much. You will not be able to really use the immersion environment before you get basic listening and reading done, for example, because any content you will be able to make sense of has to be tailored to you individually or to your level specifically, and that is something you can equally well access from home. Note that I'm not saying that going abroad immediately as a zero beginner is bad and that you will learn less than you would at home, I'm just saying that if you have a limited time to spend abroad, it's not a very good idea to go immediately. The second thing I advise against going immediately is that if you just started learning Chinese, do you really know that this is something you want to do? Do you want to invest one year of your time doing something that you might end up not liking? Maybe you study for two weeks and then you lose interest, or you find something more interesting to study or invest your time in. And then having quit your job and moved abroad and all these things aren't really helping you. So being reasonably sure that you enjoy learning Chinese and this is something you really want to do seems to be a good thing. Chris is not a beginner, however. He specifies HSK4 in his email. And assuming then that this is paired with corresponding abilities to communicate, the situation here is completely different. I went abroad after studying Chinese for one year at university, and I think that turned out rather well. I could have gone a little bit earlier, maybe after six months, and it would have been fine to go a little bit later too. And I think this is roughly in the span Chris is in. This means that you will be able to make the most out of your stay and your immersion experience because you will be able to talk with people, you will understand lots of things that's going on around you, both in terms of written and spoken Chinese, and of course there will be plenty of things you don't understand. But you do have the basic ability to start absorbing the language around you, which you simply don't have as a beginner. Thus, I would say that going abroad at an intermediate level is the best time to go if you are only able to go for a year or half a year or some other fixed period of time. Now, as I'm fond of pointing out on this podcast and on hacking Chinese in general, your geographical location does not determine how much Chinese you learn. And this is very important to understand before you go abroad. This has two consequences, and they can be put very briefly. So first, going abroad will not teach you Chinese automatically. And second, you don't have to go abroad to learn Chinese. The biggest difference between learning Chinese in your home country and learning it in an immersion environment is the effort required to learn the language. So some things will be very easy if everybody around you speaks Chinese. You simply need to open your ears and pay attention, and you have listening practice wherever you go. You just need to open your eyes and look and try to read things, and you will have plenty of opportunities to see characters all around you. However, there are many expats who have lived in Chinese-speaking environments for a long time and still don't speak the language. 
And this is, of course, because you don't have to speak Chinese or read or listen to Chinese even if you are in a country where most people do so. You can just have your earphones on and listen to your English podcasts, or you can listen to French music and hang out with your Spanish friends. That's perfectly possible. And if you work there, maybe all your co-workers speak English anyway. And then you will not learn much Chinese, it goes without saying. You learn by engaging with the language, and if you don't do so, you will not learn anything. That being said, if you leave the expat bubble and really make sure to immerse yourself for one year at an intermediate level, you will learn a lot, and maybe you will not be able to put full working proficiency on your CV, but you should be able to deal with most everyday situations and talk about most topics that interest you in Chinese without too much trouble. The important thing is also that when you get back, you will know enough Chinese to be able to learn on your own without too much difficulty. We all know that as beginners and intermediate learners, it can be rather hard to learn Chinese independently because you're limited to learning resources created specifically for learners and so on. Whereas if you've reached an upper intermediate level or maybe a lower advanced level, then you will be able to use native materials and you will never run out of things to study. So let's return to the question of whether or not you should drop everything you're doing and go abroad to learn Chinese. Questions like this rarely have one correct answer. Maybe both options are good, maybe none is. But one way to figure out where you stand after having weighed the pros and cons, and this is something I think works pretty well for lots of different situations when you have difficult decisions to make, is to simply flip a coin or roll a die if you prefer and have more than two options. The idea is not that you should choose randomly what to do with your life, but instead to pay attention to how you react to the outcome. So if you're flipping a coin and getting heads means that you're going abroad, and getting tails means that you're staying at home, and the coin toss comes up heads, what is your immediate reaction to that? What do you feel? Do you feel secretly relieved that you don't have to quit your job and go on this adventure, or do you feel disappointed? Well, this is a good indicator of what you actually think about this whole endeavor, and so take that into consideration when you make your decision. Okay, so let's move on to question number two, which is from Eibar, and this is about learning resources and, by extension, also learning methods. To summarize, he says that he spends way too much time thinking about what resources to use, and in this particular case, it's about dictionaries in Pleco. And there are lots of dictionaries, and how do you know which one is the best, and which one you should use for what purposes? And if you invest all your time in trying to choose the right resource, then you of course take time from actually using that resource. And the same could be said about learning methods or learning resources in general. For some listeners, this might sound like a non-issue, but from personal experience, I can guarantee that it is an issue for a certain type of learner, and I can count myself in this category at least some of the time. If you really care about your learning and you want to make sure you use the best methods and the best resources, you clearly need to do some research, because you're not likely to hit on the best method or the best resources randomly by just trying things, and so reading up on it and comparing and so on is an important part of learning Chinese, or learning anything for that matter. Perfectionism here is not a good thing for many reasons, and this can be rather difficult to come to terms with, and like I said, I'm talking from personal experience here. First, it might be impossible for you to figure out what the best solution is. 
And what I mean by that is that finding a method that works for you is a process. It's simply not something that can be done immediately. You need to start learning using some method. You need to realize that, hey, I like this, but I don't like that. This works, but that doesn't. And then you upgrade the method gradually. And over the years, you arrive at something that works for you. But finding that thing that works for you is not necessarily something that can even in theory be done immediately. You maybe don't have the knowledge and relying on people online to figure out for you what you prefer and what works for you might not work either. Second, there might not even be a perfect method. There could be a whole range of them, or there is not an ultimate resource, but rather a whole range that work more or less the same for you. Third, as we all know, it takes time to learn Chinese. So if you spend all your time trying to select which dictionary to use, obviously you will not learn much. And Eibar here knows this. This is why he's asking the question and how to deal with it. My hope is, of course, that through this podcast, I'm able to help more people make better decisions about these things without necessarily spending that much more time. In the specific case of dictionaries in Pleco, for example, I don't think it matters that much which dictionaries you use. I do strongly suggest that you get Outlier's Dictionary of Chinese Characters, and I will review that on Hacking Chinese, and I'll put a link in the description, because that one stands out as providing information that the other dictionaries simply don't provide. Beyond that, you will get pretty far with the basic Pleco dictionary, and of course you can add others, especially if the Pleco dictionary is too small. I mean, you will eventually run into lots of technical words or specific phrases or something else that simply isn't covered in Pleco, and then you might need one of the bigger ones. The problem is, of course, that I can say this with relative confidence after having used Pleco for 10 years and studied and taught Chinese for more than 15. But if you haven't done that, it's not obvious that one dictionary happens to be very, very useful, and that's outlier here, whereas the other ones can be added on when needed later. If we zoom out a bit, the general problem here is, of course, that we have limited time to do the things we want, and if we choose to do one thing, there will be other things we don't have time for. And, of course, choosing a method takes up time from actually using that method. This reminds me of an XKCD strip called Efficiency, and I'll put a link to it in the description. And the title says Time Cost, and then we can see how much time he presumably spends on strategy A, which is just a little bit, strategy B, which is also just a little bit, and then we have the third thing, which he apparently spends almost all his time with, which is analyzing whether strategy A or strategy B is more efficient. And then the caption says, the reason I am so inefficient. This wouldn't be funny if it weren't also true, or at least partly true. I don't think anyone really spends 90% of their time analyzing strategy A and B and then never actually use the strategies, but it tends to be a problem that we spend maybe too much time thinking about how to do things rather than just doing them. I think the way forward for people who obsess over these things and really want to optimize their learning is to realize that strategy A and strategy B and then C, D, E, F and so on really aren't that different. Yes, you might be able to come up with a better way of structuring your flashcards or use a better approach for reading and so on, but the most important thing is that you engage with the Chinese language, not exactly how you do that. And if you spend lots of time engaging with the language, you will learn it and you can tweak your method as you go. For more about perfectionism when learning Chinese and why it's bad for you, you can check out When Perfectionism Becomes an Obstacle to Progress. And this is an article so far, it hasn't made its way to the podcast yet, but I'll put a link in the description. Let's move on to the third question, which is about intermediate reading, and it comes from Jessica. 
She specifically asks for recommendations when it comes to reading materials if you know around two to three thousand characters. As with the previous questions, I will zoom out and try to answer this question in more general terms, but I will of course also try to answer this particular question. So first things first, it's a little bit problematic to talk about reading ability based on the number of characters you know, we then also have to assume that you learned words and that you practiced reading along the way and so on. But I still think that this is a reasonably useful measurement and it's certainly better than any of the other common alternatives that we have, at least if we only include those that are easy to measure. So knowing 2,000 to 3,000 characters I think puts you somewhere in the intermediate level, but of course this also depends on how well you can use these characters and so on. It's perfectly possible to communicate on a fairly advanced level with this number of characters, but it's not enough to read say native novels without having to look up lots of characters. And I should also acknowledge here that there is a big difference between knowing 2,000 characters and associated words and then the language that goes with that and adding another 50%, getting up to 3000. As I said, this depends on what you know beyond the characters, and I think it's perfectly possible to be a fairly advanced reader with, say, 3000 characters. I do think that this range of character knowledge is enough to read native content, but you still need to choose fairly carefully what you are reading. There are two things to take into consideration here, and the first is difficulty, so the difficulty of the reading material, and the second one is your interest. The problem with difficult texts is that we want to read a lot, and when I say a lot I don't mean a lot of time, we want to cover a lot of text, we want to see the characters we know many times in different situations to really learn them, and then we also want to encounter new things and see those in new environments so we learn how they are used. But if the texts are very difficult, as they are in many textbooks for example, you will end up spending hours reading just a few hundred characters, and then in total if you pursue this too much, you will not see that many characters, and therefore you will have a hard time really building a good reading ability for example. So what we're after here is extensive reading, which we covered in episode 16, and extensive reading is only possible if the text is at or lower than your current level. So if you need to look up one or two characters in every sentence, this certainly does not count as extensive reading. On the other hand, it's also possible to read more difficult texts if you focus on them and if you study a little bit more, you're willing to look things up and learn things in order to make sense of a text. This, I think, is also necessary, and it brings us to the second point, which is your interests, what you really want to read about. If you were to limit your reading to materials where you knew, say, 98 or 99% of the vocabulary before you started, it would take a very long time before you were ready to read a novel in Chinese, because it's likely that if it's written for native speakers, it contains lots of things you don't know, even as an advanced learner. This can be fine, however, you don't have to only read things that are easy, I'm just saying that you should do so most of the time, making sure you cover lots of characters and lots of language, but you can of course also focus on things that you are truly interested in, if you are willing to spend a little bit more effort to get through the texts. An excellent way to do this is to use narrow reading, which is something we discussed in a recent episode, and that was episode 151. Narrow reading is when you focus on a specific topic and you read about it several times, so you keep the same focus but you read different texts. And the idea is that the first time you read about something it's going to be very difficult, that's okay. 
The second time, you will already be familiar with the key vocabulary, so it will be a little bit easier. And when you get to the fifth or seventh or however many texts you want to read, it will be easier and easier, so you can get the extensive reading, even though it is about an area where you maybe wouldn't be able to cover, say, 98% of the vocabulary before you started the narrow reading project. You can then pursue this type of reading for topics you are very interested in, maybe they are your hobbies, maybe it's just something you're interested in, or it's part of your profession, or something else. Having a strong interest or motivation to understand a certain text or text about a certain topic is also very useful, because it's going to, like I said, require more effort, and then being motivated certainly helps. If we return to the matter of difficulty for a while, and the goal here then is to pick something which isn't too hard, that's generally what we mean when we say we want to find something of suitable difficulty, then I think there are certain misconceptions about what is difficult to read in a foreign language. The clearest example of this is probably that between fiction and non-fiction, where many people seem to believe that reading fiction is easier than reading non-fiction, because this matches our experience in our native language, but it's not true in Chinese, and I don't think it's true in any of the other foreign languages I've learned either. This assumes that you are somewhat familiar with the topic, of course, but this is usually the case when you read non-fiction in Chinese. You are not going as an intermediate student to try to read up on, say, quantum mechanics in Chinese if you don't already know about that. You're going to choose a topic you're interested in and presumably already know a lot about in your native language. This means that you already have an understanding of what's being said, you know what this is in your native language, and also the author is there to try to explain something to you and make it clear. An example of this is that authors of non-fiction try to stick to the same vocabulary. If you call something A in a textbook, you tend to call it A throughout the textbook. You don't want to change the terms just to make it more fun, or more nuanced, or varied or something, because this is just bad pedagogy. When writing fiction, though, the goal is not to be clear. You can even argue that sometimes in fiction the goal is to not be clear and pedagogical. For example, if we use the same words to describe things over and over in a novel, people would find our language to be repetitive and monotonous, and they wouldn't like it, and so authors of fiction tend to vary their language, and this is of course much, much harder to read, especially for a second language learner. What I'm trying to say here is that if you're an intermediate level learner and you want to dip your toes into real Chinese, as it were, read native level content, picking a novel meant for adult native speakers is probably not the best thing you can do. Instead, try to find something to read about which isn't fiction and where the author's goal is not to impress you with their wide-ranging vocabulary. Another area where I think most people intuitively draw the wrong conclusion about difficulty is length. So people tend to think that reading something long is harder than reading something short, but this is not true, at least not from a learner perspective. Much of the problem reading in a foreign language is that we can't use much top-down processing, that means using the knowledge we already have to interpret what we read, before we actually understand what the text is about, what's going on, and so on, and as soon as we get into the text we can use our prior knowledge to make sense of what happens after that. So kind of by definition, reading something gets easier the further you get into it, provided of course that it's relatively coherent. 
The first chapter in a book is going to be much harder than the subsequent chapters, generally speaking, because you also have all the necessary words, you have the names of the main characters, and things like that that you have to deal with in the first chapter, but then when you encounter them again in chapters 2 and so on, you will already know them, and so you can focus on the other things. This is actually a problem that is hard to get around when writing graded content in Chinese, and I've done that a fair amount over at Wordswing for our text games, where the problem is that the first bit of each game, and you can think of this as a graded reader if you want, because it's the same problem there, the first part is going to be much harder than the rest of the game or the rest of the book, because we have to introduce the setting, the characters, and things like that, and that will necessarily include some words that the reader or player doesn't know. And then we will use these for the rest of the game, and then of course that bit will be easier, but you still have to get through the beginning. And so the upshot of all this is that if you want to lower the difficulty, you should actually read longer things. It is significantly easier to read one text with 10,000 characters in it, compared to reading, say, 20 texts with 500 characters in them each. If you read the 20 small texts, you have to get over that initial hump of understanding the setting or the situation or the premise of the text 20 times instead of just once. Finally, I'd like to add one piece of advice that I relied on quite a lot when starting to read native-level novels in Chinese, and that is to read something you have already read. And the easiest way to do this is to take a novel you love in English or your native language, and then get hold of the Chinese translation and read that. First, you already know that you liked it, and that's why you picked it. And second, you're also already familiar with the plot and the characters, which means that you only need to figure out how these things are written in Chinese, not what they mean in the first place. If you think this sounds boring, and some people probably do, you can choose to reread something you read a long time ago. For example, one thing that I did for a while was to read things I read a long time ago in English and liked. For example, works of fiction that had left a deep impression on me as a teenager. I tried to find those books in Chinese. That way I still had some familiarity with the story and the content and the characters and so on, but I didn't remember enough to make it boring. Naturally, you can also do this with books you haven't read simply by looking up things in advance. For example, if you read a book in Chinese, you can check the plot outline in advance, read up on the characters, and so on. This feels much more like studying, but it can be a way of getting into non-translated works. I also want to add that you probably shouldn't stick to reading translated works of fiction for too long. They are a bit different from things written in Chinese in the first place. I mean, it's still Chinese, it's the same words, same grammar and so on, but books written in Chinese still feel quite different, and this is the type of language you actually want to learn. However, in this case, I think it's much more worthwhile to limit the difficulty in different ways and make the reading experience more entertaining and more fun than it is to read perfectly authentic Chinese. If you really want to reach an advanced level of Chinese, you need to read a lot, and nothing stops you from reading authentic Chinese texts later instead. And by then you will also have improved your reading ability, so this will be easier. So while I haven't answered the question directly, I haven't issued a list of recommendations and exactly how to approach that, I do think I have explained why I don't think that's a very good idea. You should try to find something to read which is both interesting and is at a manageable difficulty level, and I have also suggested a way of doing this, namely to choose something you've read in another language first.
You can of course also check other people's recommendation. I wrote about all the books I read one year for example and posted mini reviews on Hacking Chinese and I can put a link in the description to that. And one of the books I read that year was Huozhe by Yu Hua. And this book is usually being recommended as one of the best to start with as an intermediate learner. But while I think it was interesting, I don't think it would have been very suitable for me as an intermediate learner. I found it much too depressing and not significantly easier than other more interesting books that I read the same year. I should clarify here that I didn't read this book when I was an intermediate learner, so maybe it feels different if you actually make this your first novel. Anyway, I think that's some food for thought for people who are looking to native reading content in Chinese. And if you do have any great recommendations for books to check out, do leave a comment on Hacking Chinese. This wraps up this three-year Q&A anniversary episode of the Hacking Chinese podcast. Don't forget to recommend the podcast to your fellow students and leave a review and a rating if you like the show. Thank you for tuning in to the Hacking Chinese podcast. If you like this episode, please share it. More information and inspiration about learning and teaching Chinese can be found at hackingchinese.com. See you in the next episode, and until then, good luck with your studies.